You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Hello and welcome to another episode of the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal. I'm an associate professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Free speech has become a controversial issue these days, uh, with people on both sides lining up to end speech they don't like and keep speech going that they do like. Uh, this is difficult to think about. Our culture is divided over it, and politically we've had a long-running uh, argument over what the boundaries of free speech should be. Uh, to help us think about this and other issues, we have joining us on the show today, Suzanne Nossel, CEO of PEN America and author of the recent book, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. Uh, she has served as the Chief Operating Officer of Human Rights Watch and as Executive Director of Amnesty International USA. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Sure. Uh, let's let's jump into the, uh, the the difficult question here. What is free speech and why is it worth defending? Sure. Free speech is really the restriction of government's ability to ban and punish expression and particularly on the basis of viewpoint or the opinions that are being expressed so the most fundamental definition of free speech is is an individual's ability to say their piece to speak out to voice an opinion to express themselves in writing or artistically without having to worry about reprisals from government. Now, of course, free speech means more than that. You ask the question, you know, why do we protect free speech? And I address that in my book. It's actually the subject of the last chapter. And, you know, it turns out this goes back to ancient Greece and a recognition uh, that it was instilled even back then of the importance of free speech to self-government, the role that free speech plays as an underpinning and a foundation for so many other freedoms, whether it's freedom of worship, freedom of assembly, uh, the ability to advocate on behalf of causes like racial justice or gender justice, free speech as a route to truth, and the idea that in an open marketplace of ideas, the most voracious, the most worthy and compelling ideas will rise to the top, uh, to the foreground, and that falsehoods would be exposed and rejected. So there are kind of a whole range of purposes that free speech serves in an open society within a democracy. And to realize those purposes, what I confront in the book is it actually takes more than simply curbing the ability of government to legislate and impinge upon freedom of expression. We have to attend to the enablers of free speech. We have to think about the role of online platforms and corporations in restricting speech. We have to think about informal censoriousness, uh, Twitter mobs and reprisals for speech that are exacted socially. And so, you know, while I'd say the essence of free speech is that freedom from government interference, 
the realization of the benefits of free speech depends upon much more. Yeah, and I, I think uh, you, you've you've said it, especially when you when you talk about how free speech enables truth to sort of rise to the top culturally. And maybe maybe I'm wrong about this, and I'm not reading the culture properly because I don't follow the culture super closely. But uh, I think kind of everyone agrees with that. Uh, at least when I hear arguments uh, uh, in favor of restricting speech, uh, it's usually not an argument about truth or or falsehood. Uh, it's usually an argument that has to do with harm. Uh, is is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think not entirely. You know, okay. one of the most contentious issues that we deal with at Pen America and that is roiling our society is disinformation. And you know, that's a matter of falsehood. For example, false information when it comes to COVID-19, uh, which has been a major factor over the last couple of years, interfering with our public health response, people calling into question, uh, the efficacy of vaccines when the data is very clear, calling into question the utility of masks. And it's difficult because Look, these are reasonable subjects for debate. The scientific data, while compelling and forceful, is not absolute. We want to sustain some room for doubt and questioning and alternative theories. You know, the debate over the origins of COVID, uh, it, you know, has been a contentious one where, you know, there's a real argument about what is disinformation and what is legitimate grounds for debate. And so there have been calls to suppress false information for fear that it's going to impair the pandemic response, harm the economy, uh, cost lives. You know, it's also the case in the political arena, false information when it comes to, for example, the outcome of the 2020 election has become a, a wellspring for insurrection in this country. And so I think uh, harm is part of it, but, but falsehood is also also plays a role. Well, when when uh, uh, in either harm or falsehood, then and, and uh, this this will broaden my next question a little bit. Uh, who gets to define that uh, in in terms of uh, free speech and whether uh, speech should be restricted? Who who is the arbiter of truth and falsehood, and and who is the arbiter of uh, of whether or not there's harm built into the speech? Well, it depends on the arena, right? You know, in when it comes to government restrictions on speech, ultimately those are adjudicated in the courts. And, and uh, you know, the protections of the First Amendment, although they are the broadest of any legal regime in the world, we have greater latitude for free speech here in the United States than the citizens of any other country. They are not absolute. You know, you can't put out uh, false information about a drug or a consumer product. Uh, you can't engage directly in incitement to violence. You can't defame someone. And when those happen, those, or there are allegations that those infractions happen, they can be challenged in court. And ultimately, it's judges who decide whether the speech uh, is protected by the First Amendment or sits outside of its boundaries, fits into one of the exceptions to uh, the parameters of the First Amendment. But then... You know, if we're talking about social media, it may be the platform, uh, Twitter or Facebook. Both of them have strict policies that restrict the spread of, for example, health-related disinformation, quackery, or false uh, cures, you know, be, uh, telling people that they could take hydroxychloroquine uh, as a remedy for COVID, for example. 
and they adjudicate whether a post is uh, legitimate, maybe questioning of scientific orthodoxy or constitutes impermissible, uh, fraudulent or baseless medical advice. And the line drawing is difficult to do. You know, they employ experts. They have to do it in uh, many different languages. Uh, oftentimes, there's tremendous pressure because information moves so quickly across the platform. And so delay may mean that the consequences of a post reverberate all over the world before a content moderator even sees it. So, you know, there's not one arbitrary of truth. It depends on the arena. And, and is that uh, is that also true of the whatever the standard of truth the uh, arbiter of truth is using? I, I, that might be too confusing a way to ask it. Uh, but whether whether it's in the courts or on social media, is there more than one standard that they should be appealing to when deciding truth and harm and falsehood and so forth? Well, you know there are different sources of authority that a court might draw on. Uh, you know, obviously they'll look at precedents, but they may also look at you know, how strong is the scientific consensus on something? If, 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 if the allegation is that a corporation is making a false claim, well, you know, is it really false or is it, uh, you know, something that a minority of studies might affirm? And, you know, that may be a determinant of whether it constitutes consumer fraud. On an online platform, they look to international law and free expression protections. They look to the national law in the jurisdiction where the post was made. They say it's a post about a an illicit drug. Well, what counts as an illicit drug varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So it depends where the post was made. Of course, one of the complexities of social media is that you know, the post may have been made in Brazil, but that doesn't mean it can only be seen in Brazil. It may be seen in other jurisdictions where the drug in question is illegal. And so uh, they have to deal with those complexities. They will also look at uh, expert sources of advice. They'll consult, in some instances, civil society organizations uh, to get a perspective on how, what particular speech may mean in a given cultural context or to a particular religious group. So, uh, you know, those sources of authority are quite diverse. Yeah, I, I think it's an... It it's an interesting question to sort of hash through. I, I do this with my students when we deal with First Amendment issues uh, as to where do you fall if you're a judge. Uh, of course, in the in the political setting, we, we tend towards that direction and less on the social media side of things. But uh, you, you still have to appeal to something, uh, whatever your decision is, whichever way you're going. And that's it's just a real, real challenge. Um, is a is the First Amendment when we're looking at a uh, when we're looking at free speech, uh, you talk about its its breadth and its narrowness. Uh, is is it too broad? Does it protect things that shouldn't be protected? Uh, is it too narrow? Does it fail to protect things that should be protected? Uh, how should we approach the First Amendment relative to speech? You know, there's no perfect standard, uh, and and I I would say in my view the First Amendment gets it at about as close to right uh, as any. You know, there's a, a distance between what the First Amendment provides and what Article 19 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights provides. The International Covenant, for example, allows a government to prohibit incitement to hatred or incitement to discrimination. And, you know, many people think 
that's very legitimate. It, it, it uh, can be used to ban, for example, Holocaust denial, which uh, feeds anti-Semitism. It can be used to ban, you know, horrifically racist or bigoted speech. And you know, people think, well, you're protecting minorities from vituperative and denigrating speech, and that's an important value. You know, what I believe, having looked at the history and at the experience of countries that have implemented laws that restrict speech in ways that the First Amendment wouldn't allow, is that the, giving the authority to governments to more aggressively police speech, that on balance, governments will use that power in self-serving ways. They'll use it to go after their critics, to repress dissidents, to retaliate against publications that try to hold them accountable, uh, to uh, muzzle and intimidate those who may question historical narratives that reify a given leader's power. You know, we see this right now in Russia where uh, Putin has very broad powers to restrict speech and he's under enormous pressure and, you know, he's using them aggressively. He's banned calling the Ukraine war a war. He's banned all of Facebook. Uh, he's basically threatened journalists for of, uh, that they'll be sentenced to 15 years in prison for doing their job. And, so, and that's you know, a powerful example of the risk of giving government more leeway to adjudicate speech. So I think we're better off with our system, uh, you know, which has actually progressively narrowed the discretion that government has to arbitrate speech. The categories of exception to the First Amendment have been uh, kind of surgically delimited by the courts progressively over a period of many decades so that, you know, uh, the vast quantum of speech in this country is protected by the First Amendment. And I, I think that's a good thing on balance. Yeah, and, and certainly the uh, the remaining categories that, that are not protected, uh, at least as far as I understand, have basically been obliterated by the internet anyway. But uh, maybe we can we can get to that. Uh, I didn't I didn't give you this question in advance, so you're free to decline it if you want to. But if you could add uh, a clause or a phrase to the First Amendment about speech, what would it be? I wouldn't mess with it. You know, I think it's <laughs> in pretty good stead, uh, you know, now uh, for well over 200 years. And I think anything you might add, you know, would run the risk of provoking a reaction where somebody would feel their speech was going to be disfavored or uh, inhibited. And so I think we're better off. It's, it's a relatively flexible standard, you know, it's silent about the discretion in the hands of uh, corporations and social media companies. So there's a lot that it doesn't address. And I'd say you know, even most of the free speech discussion in my book deals with issues that fall outside the scope of the First Amendment. Um, but I, I don't favor extending the power of government into those realms. And so I wouldn't add to it. Yeah, and that, that, uh, that does lead into a, a question that I, I did provide in advance. Uh, where, where do things like social media platforms fit into this conversation about free speech? I mean, they're they're not government entities, right? They're uh, so so maybe the First Amendment doesn't apply to them in the same way, uh, but they also clearly do more than just host private conversations. So maybe it should apply apply a little bit. Like, where where do they fall here? Yeah, look, social media 
platforms now account for a huge swath of what we used to think of as the public square. They're places where we deliberate. They are marketplaces of ideas. They are uh, junctions for interaction between people with vastly different views. They're channels of communication, information dissemination. They're the primary way you know, right now that many of us are getting uh, information about what's happening in Ukraine and on the front lines. And so they're tremendously important enablers of free expression and discourse and exchange and the, and the dissemination of information. They're not subject to the First Amendment or to international law directly because they're not governed uh, and controlled by governments, they're uh, in the hands of private entities, and so they pose these really unique challenges from a free expression perspective. They're really, uh, you know, someone would sort of describe them as a free speech, unidentified flying object, and I think that's uh, true in a sense. It's just not something that we've encountered until this time. We've dealt, we used to deal with newspapers and magazines, but they were much more controlled environments. They didn't have the virality or the immediacy or the global reach. They were uh, under the thumb of editors who adopted professional standards. And so the jurisprudence that we can rely on uh, for free speech really doesn't speak to many of these difficult questions that arise in the realm of social media. People are arguing about whether you know Facebook is more analogous to the New York Times or to a newsletter or to a carrier like Verizon or AT&T and really none of the analogies is perfect and you know we're in a situation of groping toward a responsible way to address the harms of online speech while still making possible the the benefits that it brings from a information sharing and free expression perspective and you know, it's difficult. The rules are being written as we speak. Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe just in, in sort of a practical sense, uh, uh, if if you were a judge and a free speech question on social media comes in front of you uh, and you're you're asked to decide whether or not the First Amendment applies, uh, how, how do you think about that? Yeah, the First Amendment does not apply directly. These platforms, by and large, have committed themselves voluntarily to principles of free speech. And you know, part of that is self-serving because they benefit from a freewheeling debate on the platforms, from many people wanting to jump in, from people being able to say outrageous things that go viral. Their algorithms are based on engagement. And if they were to try to police speech and only allow that which is proper or that which is strictly true, it would be impossible for these platforms to function if they had lawyers who had to review every post before it went live. You know, social media as we know it would not exist. And so it, it's really impossible to conceive of what it would mean for them to be treated as a government. Uh, you know, at the same time, uh, I think they are subject to a version of public accountability where people recognize the risks and dangers of social media, particularly you know, forms of content like terrorist recruitment or pornography have very palpable, concrete life and death consequences for the public. And so 
the social media companies, you know, increasingly are under pressure to be seen as dealing responsibly with this massive quantum of contact tent and all of its complexities that happen on the platform with issues like online harassment, with the spread of disinformation. And they make reference to international standards and national legal standards in trying to discern you know, where to draw the line, what speech should be permitted and what should be out of bounds. So it's not that the law is irrelevant. It's just that it doesn't apply directly to them. Yeah, and that's, uh, I mean, obviously, I think that's both the, the current legal standing and that sounds like the, the right the right approach. Um, although I do, I do have to wonder at what point does something like Facebook or whatever Instagram or whatever social media get, get so large that we say, look, this is functionally a public space, right? We, we need a, a, if we're, if we're going to use first amendment rules, then they need to apply. Uh, uh, is there a tipping point there or is it just because it's a private company, there will never be that point. Um, you know, I think they're at the point where people recognize that the level of influence they have in society is tantamount to a government. You know, the, the revenue that they, a platform like Facebook or Google generates, uh, you know, outpaces that of most countries. And so uh, I think the scale is there, but that that doesn't dictate that suddenly the First Amendment should apply. I don't think we would, most people would want the First Amendment to apply to a platform like Facebook. If the First Amendment were to apply to uh, Facebook, uh, there would be, you know, very limited restrictions on hateful speech, on online harassment, on disinformation, and the platforms would become completely debased uh, in ways that would make them, I think, functionally unusable and would drive most people away from them. And so I think if we want to acknowledge the benefits of these platforms as forums for discourse, uh, you know, there's pretty broad agreement that some level of moderation is essential. In fact, the underpinning of Section 230, which is the immunity from liability that these social media platforms enjoy under the 1996 uh, Communications Decency Act, that immunity was put into place because there was a recognition that platforms needed to engage in moderation. And yet they were worried that if they did so, they could be legally liable uh, if they were uh, removing certain content from the platform and yet they failed to remove something that proved to be defamatory or a false claim in advertising. You know, could somebody sue them for uh, having an ad on the platform that said, you know, the potato chips wouldn't make you fat, when in fact the potato chips might make you fat. Well, the immunity from liability that platforms enjoy under Section 230 means that you can't bring that lawsuit, even if a platform is moderating content. And so, you know, the idea that the First Amendment is an unworkable standard for social media is pretty universally held. What that doesn't answer is, you know, how should we adjudicate these platforms and you know, where should the, the lines be, be drawn? And that's what uh, every social media company and, you know, reams of people in academia and in civil society are, you know, right now debating and trying to figure out. Yeah, and I, uh, 
to, to off-road for, for just a second. Uh, part of my concern with, with social media is uh, is not re- that it should be just a free-for-all where the First Amendment applies and anyone can say anything. Uh, part of my concern is the uh, the shaping effect it's having on uh, on Americans who are coming up with this as their primary standard of public engagement, where they uh, they are shaped thinking, I don't ever have to hear anything I don't want to hear either because of moderation or just because that's how the algorithm works. And then they go out into actual society, the the physical world, and hear uncomfortable things and think that shouldn't be allowed and kind of practically undermine the First Amendment, even if that's not the intent. Um, Like I said, that's that's off-roading, and and maybe that's that's just a cranky old man's concern there. No, I mean, I I do worry about that. I think, uh, you know, the nature of social media does allow people to curate what they see and what they hear and the information that they receive. It makes it easier than it used to be to sort of wall yourself off from alternative perspectives. It's not just social media. We see the same thing, for example, on on cable television, where the channels are very much fragmented and you can choose to uh, engage with those that affirm your ideology, you know, whether that's progressive or conservative or conspiracist, uh, you know, you can sort of move through society as if you're a well-informed person, uh, you know, who knows what happened in in Washington and that there's a war going on in Ukraine, but without ever encountering credible fact-based journalism. And so our information ecosystem is, you know, to my mind, in trouble and in many respects compromised and you know we face a real challenge in terms of how to rebuild it i don't think social media is the only culprit uh you know what makes it complicated is that you know social media can also enable some very good and important things there uh you know information and images for example uh from the ukraine conflict that you know make it to wide consumption that uh, cast doubt on claims being made by military leaders that uh, elevate the plight of refugees. And, you know, all of that's very important and very positive and necessary. And so one of the challenges is to try to uh, address those aspects of social media that can be most damaging while holding on to those which are beneficial. And there's not always a bright line, and we, we, don't, we wouldn't always agree, we wouldn't all agree on which is which, and so that makes it it, it, it really complex. And, and I think that's a good point to sort of transition into the, the cultural side of your book, because a, a significant portion of, of what you write is a a call for people to have a proper disposition uh, when engaging in speech and when thinking about free speech. So can you... Uh, uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that? What What's wrong with the uh, American disposition uh, with regard to free speech, and how should we be working on correcting that? Well, I think living in a diverse, pluralistic society implies a series of obligations that we have as citizens and that are necessary to undertake in order for us to all be able to enjoy free speech. So I talk in the book about the imperative of being conscientious with language. You know, uh, If you're engaging with different groups of people, whether that's a racial minority, a religious minority, people with disabilities, to give thought to how they describe themselves, what terms may be 
offensive or demeaning to them uh, and be respectful of that. You know, how people uh, want to be known, what pronouns they use, even if it's uncomfortable to use a pronoun that is not familiar to you, that you didn't grow up with, to recognize that mores change, that this has become something that's considered uh, acceptable and perfectly normal in many contexts, and that you need to, as a citizen, adapt in order to engage with others, to not cause friction, to actually be able to make your points and get across your ideas without distracting people uh, with needless offenses that stand in the way of your ability to be heard and to persuade. And so, you know, to me, it's a kind of give and take. And, and free expression has always involved a measure of voluntary restraint. None of us says everything, absolutely everything that comes to mind. You know, we hold back, whether it's with our spouse or with our children or at the workplace, we have to exercise discretion. And in a diverse society, you know, there's some new forms of discretion that merit attention. Yeah, I, I think uh, sort of the subtext of, you know, don't don't be a jerk is is always an important one. Uh, my wife does not say that to me every day when I go out the door, but she probably should. So I, I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I think uh, sort of across the board, I agree with that. But the objection that I think will come is that we're letting cultural conventions then, if, if that is the approach, we're letting cultural conventions be determined, be governed by the, the touchiest people. D does that make sense? I think there's a risk of that. And I think there are instances of that, that there's a kind of, uh, you know, I argue in the book that speech can cause harm, that there, you know, there are documented studies, and I cite them in the book, that show that people who are subject to pervasive demeaning or denigrating speech, racial slurs, uh, hostile attitudes, stereotyping, particularly if it's something that they are encountering throughout their lives, bear demonstrable, measurable, psychological, academic, and even physiological consequences from that. And so we have to take that seriously. At the same time, it's true that the harms of speech can be both exaggerated uh, and invented or projected, that not all speech that kind of hypothetically cause, could cause harm actually does cause harm, that a lot of insults and slights and offenses are fleeting. They're not that sort of pervasive pattern that someone is encountering throughout their whole life. And so we have to be judicious in mediating these harms. I don't think we should give in to the loudest voice or the most fragile constituency. I talk in the book about the importance of avoiding equating speech with violence, which I think is a very uh, unhelpful kind of conflation of two things that are absolutely distinct and uh, a distinction that needs to be sustained. I talk about how to protest offensive speech without silencing it or shutting it down, uh, how to make space for attitudes that are challenging that may defy the conventional wisdom and that may be controversial and the importance of affirmatively, uh, even if you don't agree with the ideas, uh, trying to affirm the importance and the opportunity to articulate those ideas and for them to be heard. And so my book is really a set of interlocking principles that I think all need to be taken into account in order for us to 
uh, sustain free speech protections in, in a way that meshes with the demands of our evolving society. Uh, do these uh, these principles, and, and again, I'm, I'm I, you're, you're preaching to the choir in this book largely. I'm I'm basically sold on on most of what you you argue about free speech there. But uh, do do they work when only one side of a conversation is is respecting them? Uh, do do they work when uh, uh, you know one side is saying, hey, let's let's respect free speech and you know respect each other as people, but also let each other have their full say? Uh, and the other side says, just for example, uh, no, we're we're not going to let Marxists have their say, and we're going to pass a law uh, keeping the the critical racial theory crowd out of our classrooms. Or you know, fill in your example of choice, right? Uh, uh, do they work when they're when they're only one way? You know, I, threats to free speech can come from all sides, and you know, ultimately, I, what I argue for is a new consensus that I hope can be embraced by the right and the left that rests on these principles and that allows people to be heard regardless of which side of the political spectrum they are on. Because, you know, if I am a defender of free speech and I bump up against someone who wants to silence and shut down and can't engage with a challenging argument or an alternative perspective, uh, you know, that's going to impair our ability to get into a conversation, for us to have that kind of open discourse that leads to, leads us to truth, that uh, enables the best ideas to come to the foreground. So I do think ultimately free speech, you know, historically is, is a cause that's above politics, that's not the province of either the right or the left solely, and I hope that's what we can get back to that kind of universality. I'm I'm on board with that. I'm 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 sold there. But instead, of, you know, what we see, unfortunately, is sort of a race to the bottom, where the censoriousness on the left has now, you know, provoked these book banning and curriculum banning measures from the right, and it's you know it's sort of an eye for an eye, leaving the whole world blind. You know, if you don't like the way you believe that your political opponents are infringing on free speech. You know, I don't think the best answer to that is 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 laws that discriminate against books and curriculum on the basis of viewpoint. Yeah, well, I'd, I would say even more broadly, it's rarely a good idea when state legislatures or school boards get involved in immediate classroom curriculum. But uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's that's not the common position these days. Um, well, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about uh, freedom of speech or about the, the sort of cultural attitudes we should be taking when when talking to each other or talking about free speech? You know, I just think if you believe in free speech, uh, it's not enough to be passive uh, in this environment. Free speech is under threat from both the right and the left. I think we need to be activated as free speech defenders, even when the speech is uncomfortable or we may disagree with that. And I urge people to read Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All for a set of guidelines and blueprints for how to take matters into your own hands and help keep uh, space for open debate within your communities and, and lecture halls and dining tables. And uh, another question you're free to decline because I, I didn't put it on the outline. Uh, if someone reads, has read Dare to Speak and thinks, I, I want to know more, uh, are there other resources you would point them towards? Absolutely. Go to our website at pen.org. Uh, we have all kinds of resources for free speech on campus, in schools, and around the world. And uh, if you, uh, uh, again, I, I didn't, I, I didn't prep this, but if you want to give a blurb for Penn, you are welcome to do so. 
Sure. We're an organization that both celebrates and defends freedom of speech worldwide. And so we're engaged in protecting imperiled writers around the world and also on a whole range of free expression policy issues, including disinformation, online harassment, the crisis in local news, and much more. So uh, I urge you to sign up for our listservs and, and uh, updates and join Penn as a member. All right. Well, and I will encourage our listeners to pick up and read Dare to Speak, uh, Defending Free Speech for All. It's uh, it's fantastic. Uh, a great sort of outline of free speech and how we should be thinking about it. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Uh, I appreciate having you here, and I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much. Take care. Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting christianhumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show, like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash cityofmanpodcast, or get in touch with us at cityofmanpodcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. This land is your land and this land is my land from the California to the New York Island from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters this land was made for you and me as I went a-walking that ribbon of highway